This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. May I see your vaccine confirmation and ID, please? Vaccine passports have only been around for a matter of weeks, but already they've become part of our daily routines. So have protests against them, while workers in some sectors have lost or been suspended from their jobs for refusing to get the jab. On this episode, we'll speak to two lawyers who are working on the front lines of vaccine law in litigation and labor and employment about how vaccination requirements are shaping our public spaces and our workplaces and how the courts might eventually shape them too. Law in the Time of COVID-19 explores the law and policy of pandemic response and recovery. We're looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. And because it wouldn't be a law firm podcast without a disclaimer, here's a disclaimer. McCarthy Tatro is providing this podcast as a public service, if we may say so ourselves. It may contain legal information, but it does not contain legal advice or a legal opinion, recommendation, or statement of policy of McCarthy Tatro. Here's our episode, Job or Jab? In jurisdictions across Canada, you can't dine in a restaurant or have a drink at a bar or go to a movie or to the gym without first proving that you've been double vaccinated. Since October 30th, the same has been true of boarding an airplane or a passenger train. As vaccine passports have become familiar, so have the protests against them. These have been happening for well over a year, of course. First, they were against masks and now against vaccine requirements. Those who take to the streets argue, sometimes in rather crude terms, that requiring customers or workers or passengers or students or teachers or even nurses to wear masks or to prove their vaccination status is a violation of their constitutional or workplace rights. Do they have a point? And what happens when an employer implements a vaccine requirement and then suspends or terminates employees who don't comply? To explore these questions, I spoke with two of McCarthy Tatro's experts in vaccine law. Adam Kanji is an associate in McCarthy Tatro's litigation group in Toronto. Adam's practice focuses on public law, commercial litigation, professional negligence, and appellate advocacy. Nicole Denisette is an associate in McCarthy Tatro's labor and employment group in Toronto. Among other things, Nicole counsels employers on vaccine-related issues. We spoke on Thursday, November the 5th. Adam, Nicole, thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us, Adam. Thanks, Adam. So let me start with you, other Adam. Uh, we've seen a lot of news reports and tweets and Facebook messages, and we've all heard from friends with respect to protests against vaccine mandates, against vaccine passports. There's a lot of anger out there, and it's spilled out onto the streets for months and months now. A lot of those protests involve invocations of legal entitlements, freedoms, liberties, things that are protected constitutionally and by other legal frameworks. Has there been litigation or do we expect there to be litigation where these sorts of protests find their way into the courts? So there has been. And in fact, for how recent these policies are in Canada, there's been a decent amount of litigation and I'd expect more to follow. Uh, some of the more interesting ones though have been in British Columbia. Um, in fact, there were two human rights tribunal cases not too long ago that dismissed complaints to vaccination policies 
on the basis that political beliefs or ideological opposition do not exempt you from public health guidelines. And then separately, we've seen in Saskatchewan where uh, the Court of Queen's Bench dismissed an, a motion for an injunction against Saskatchewan's vaccination policy. And most recently in Ontario, an application has just been issued um, seeking declarations that Ontario's vaccine passport system violates sections 278 and 15 of the charter. That's still in its very early days and will continue to work its way through the courts. But I'd expect that it continues to, I guess, permeate as, uh, as we continue to live under a regime where people do need to show proof of vaccination to access certain services. I suppose it's not surprising that in a, and it's probably a good thing, that in a country where we have a strong commitment to the rule of law, a robust court system, an independent judiciary, that people do feel that they can take these sorts of issues to the courts in order to seek to vindicate what they believe their rights to be. But it sounds to me, Adam, like most of these cases have been resolved in the government's favor. Do you expect that to continue? I think the way that these policies have been crafted are very considerate of charter rights in general. And I would expect that the government continues to prevail during most of the litigation. Um, you see in almost every policy uh, that at least I've reviewed so far, um, that there are exemptions in place for medical reasons or uh, religious reasons, or the policies do not apply to all facilities more generally. I, for example, I don't need to show proof of vaccination to get groceries, but I might to access a movie theater. And it's those types of, or it's that type of narrow tailoring that I think is what gives the state the edge when they say, you know, we aren't acting in violation of your charter rights. We have actually taken it into account. And we've also balanced our restrictions with what we need from a public health point of view. Yeah, there, it seems to me also that there's a, a necessary tension between the specific and the general, that, that a, a legislature, when it's making laws for the benefit of an entire jurisdiction, or when a government is using its authority under a statute to impose restrictions that are supposed to apply generally and work for all sectors of the economy and for all of us as, as people who live within that jurisdiction, that things may be easily justified at the broad level. But I can imagine there being some difficulty in specific individual cases, particularly where the contours of the outer limits, I should say, of these restrictions are concerned, you know, maybe not being able to go to a movie theater. It's probably a bad example, but not being able to go to a movie theater is no sweat for you or I, but it is for somebody else. Maybe the restriction of, of for air travel is a problem for somebody who needs medical treatment for their child in a jurisdiction that they don't live in. You can imagine there being cases where the exceptions are where the action is and where the legality of these policies uh, ends up having to be determined in those sort of marginal cases. I mean, we know as litigators that the facts dictate the result nine times out of 10. And you can see that being the case here too. But, but now that I've given you my, my soliloquy, let me, let me move over to you, Nicole, because exceptions are, are, a lot, are where the action largely is in the employment context. How, what are we seeing from our clients in their roles as employers when it comes to demands from employees for, uh, for exceptions to uh, vaccine policies, for example, that, that employers have put in place at their workplaces? Yeah, that's something we're seeing a lot. So 
as Adam mentioned, most of these vaccine mandates or these vaccine policies have exemptions. The two principal exemptions that we see um, are for uh, medical reasons or religious reasons. And those are both uh, grounds that are protected under most uh, human rights legislation across Canada. So we're seeing these um, exceptions in the policies and a lot of employees are making requests to um, be exempt from a mandatory vaccine policy uh, under both. And it's very challenging for employers to, um, you know, make those determinations at time. And, and we don't have a lot of case law yet, but we have had some, some helpful policy statements from human rights commissions, um, including Ontario's human rights commissions, to help guide employers um, in, in uh, making a determination when, when they get a request like that. So, so what is that guidance? So Ontario Human Rights Commission has come out with a policy statement. Uh, we have a blog about it on our website too, if um, you're interested in reading more about this. www.mccarthy.ca. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, essentially saying that um, personal preference does not amount to creed or religion for, for the purposes of Ontario's human rights code. So, so a personal preference is not enough if you, um, uh, yes, yeah, it's not enough to, to qualify for a religious exemption. You, you have to show something more than that. And again, uh, we're, we're still a little bit in this gray area about what that might be. But, but just saying, you know, general statements such as I'm opposed to it um, because um, I believe in personal freedom, like a general statement like that will likely not be enough. That seems like a fairly fine line to tread, though, uh, that, that, you know, how is it that an employer faced with an employee who says, I have a religious conviction that says I cannot get the vaccine, therefore you cannot deny me continued participation in your workforce on the basis of a vaccine policy that requires me to show proof of vaccination. What's an employer to do when they may make the subjective judgment that this is merely a personal preference and in accordance with the policy that you've just described, that doesn't warrant an exception to a policy, but the employee asserts repeatedly potentially or, or, or very assertively that this is, this is a bona fide religious conviction. How is an employer who might not know the first thing about the asserted religious creed uh, to make the determination between one case and the other? Yeah, it's extremely challenging because um, the, the law for, for religious exemptions has both this um, objective component. So is, is like, is, does the religion require this of, of me? But it also has, uh, as you touched upon, this subjective component. So it's, do I sincerely believe, um, do I have a sincere belief belief that that I am not allowed to be vaccinated. So it's extremely challenging for, for as you say, employers or um, human resources staff who, who, you know, don't necessarily have a ton of knowledge, don't necessarily have a degree in religious theology to, to um, address those. And, and we're doing our best, but I, but I think it's going to be helpful once we have um, more decisions from human rights tribunals across Canada to navigate those types of issues. And give us a sense of scale, Nicole. I mean, we, of course, who are not as close to these sorts of challenging conversations as you are, only have the perspective of what we read in the newspaper. And because 
the protests and the angry employees who are being dismissed and these numbers that we sometimes see of, of workforces that are being reduced because people are being put on unpaid leave for not having shown vaccination status, it can seem potentially exaggerated, just the scale of the issue here. How widespread are these sorts of, of challenges really in practice? So the challenges are widespread. We're seeing a lot of employees making those requests under the policies, but actually very few religions have documented doctrinal reasons for not believing in, not believing in immunizations, sorry. So, so we're not um, seeing that many uh, religious leaders coming up with, with reasons why this wouldn't be okay. So for example, Pope Francis came out and said, this is okay, I'm immunized myself. Like there's no theological reasons why Catholics can't be immunized. So we're dealing very much more with those um, subjective requests. Adam, you were involved in an initiative that our firm did with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce that got a lot of excellent traction, where the business community, this is months ago now, got ahead of a lot of public authorities and, and governments in coming up with guidance and guidelines for businesses to consider in implementing their own vaccination requirements, even before some of the current requirements for showing a vaccine passport before you enter a food court or what have you were put into place by governments. Has that continued? Are we continuing to see that private enterprise is leading the way in, in asking for or implementing some of these kinds of restrictions? And, and why do you think that is? I think generally, yes. I think private businesses are continuing to lead the way. We, of course, now have a government framework for certain sectors where it is required. Um, but I think you find that employees generally, uh, patrons of certain businesses, any, and anyone else find that they are a lot more comfortable attending certain places when they know mm -hmm. people are vaccinated. And so from a business perspective, it seems to make sense that you, know, you will, on your own initiative, implement a policy that would meet you know, the rigorous standards that are needed for private enterprises uh, under the human rights code or anywhere else um, because it just makes sound business sense and so you continue to see sectors that otherwise wouldn't need a vaccination policy decide to implement one on their own accord right so, so you know someone someone who is vaccinated and has unvaccinated children at home may be more inclined to shop in an establishment where the store puts a sign in the window saying all of our employees have been vaccinated than they might be at a store that doesn't have such an advertisement. There's, there's sort of a financial or an economic incentive, in other words, for businesses to implement these sorts of policies internally. Definitely. It's, a, it's definitely a cost-benefit analysis when, for industries and sectors that don't have a requirement to have a policy in place. And that's what I think you're starting to see across the country more and more. And Nicole, are there any potential employment law issues that arise when an employer gets ahead of what is required legally? For example, if the government says, through whatever instrument, all businesses in a particular sector must require proof of vaccination in order to be on their premises, then that is one situation where an employee doesn't get vaccinated and therefore is put on unpaid leave. Is the situation any different if it's an employer in a in, a, in an industry that doesn't have that sort of requirement and it imposes 
a vaccine requirement of its own accord for the reasons that Adam has described? Yeah, I think often we're we're seeing um, clients and employers kind of like if there's no mandatory requirement, you kind of look at what the standard is in your industry. So so what are what are other people doing? Um, what are the risks associated with our business place versus other business place business places? Like, is it an office environment? Is it a, is it an environment where everybody has to come in physically um, in the office or at the work site to perform the work? And then that can really guide employers in deciding whether or not uh, they they want to to implement a policy like that, even though it might not be required. Um, we're also seeing certain. Um, advantages uh, across Canada. So, so for example, for, for capacity limits. And so depending on the workplace, that might uh, have an impact in the decision as well. Let's talk about what happens when terminations or suspensions or being put on unpaid leave. And I, I'll ask you to explain the differences between these things in answering this question. What happens when those things happen? We, we see in the newspaper stories about large numbers of employees and different businesses and different sectors being placed on unpaid leave because they haven't shown proof of vaccination. When an employer is facing a moment where a number of their employees haven't met the requirements that the employer has imposed, what are the employer's options and what happens next? So before an employer um, implements a vaccination policy, we would recommend that they consider uh, the consequences for non-compliance before and that they have a plan in place um, before implementing such a policy. And sometimes where um, the vaccination policy is mandatory, you'll have that guidance kind of laid out for you already. So, so for example, um, the federal government um, has a, a, an approach um, for employees of the core public administration that's that's published and you kind of have to follow that approach, which um, goes from an unpaid suspension to a termination. So it's good to kind of think about that um, at the outset and um, decide if you're gonna maybe start by warning employees and then it might go into an unpaid suspension and then it might ultimately become a termination. And uh, Social Development Canada has actually published some guidance um, about how to address an employee's refusal to comply with a vaccine policy um, on the record of employment. And so per the guidance, when an employee makes its own makes um, their own decision not to report to work because they, they don't want to get vaccinated, the employer should use the code quit or the code leave of absence versus if it's an employer that makes the decision to terminate an employee or to suspend an employee because they're not um, getting vaccinated, they should use the code dismissal on a record of employment and that will affect um, whether or not that employee um, will receive EI. And is that the reason? So I, I guess when we see different stories in the news, and sometimes they talk about employees being terminated, sometimes they talk about employees being suspended without pay with the possibility of later termination, why would an employer take one approach rather than the other? Well, if the employer terminates the employee, there's the question of whether or not they have to give that employee notice. And so under the Ontario Employment Standards Act, you have minimum notice requirements uh, unless the employee was guilty of willful misconduct. And so right now, um, 
a lot of employers don't know um, whether or not refusing to get vaccinated amounts to willful misconduct. So the suspension is a little bit like a temporary solution and and um, a little bit like a warning to the employee and, and to, to make this process more gradual. And when you mention the Employment Standards Act, that's provincial legislation. That's provincial, so, yeah. I'm using yeah. that as an example. So, so you'll have different um, acts across different provinces in Canada, right. and, then, and then you'd also have um, different legislation in the federal sector. Has there been any suggestion of making legislative changes that would make this a little bit more clear about whether letting someone go because they wouldn't comply with a vaccine policy is 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 cause for dismissal? Not as far as I know, and and I think that would be helpful whether it's in the form of a legislative amendment or in the form of reported decisions to have a little bit more guidance about that, and that might ultimately depend on the, on the circumstances of the case. Like you said, the facts matter, right? If you have someone that um, you know is being disrespectful, disobedient, has no good reason to not get vaccinated, hasn't gone through the accommodation process well, then you have a better case as an employer to allege cause versus um, if someone has a very sympathetic situation, has a medical condition, has potentially a, a religious reason not to do it, then um, it's, it's a little bit um, riskier or more difficult to take that position. Got it. Adam, let me change gears slightly here and go back to the constitutional dimension to all of this. These are, I mean, we're living in a, in a period of time that we all are hoping is not permanent. We don't expect it to be. It's a pandemic. It, it has lingered for a lot longer than I think any of us anticipated, but we all continue to cling to the conviction, the hope, the belief that we will not be living with the sorts of conditions we currently are permanently. Do you think it changes things from a constitutional standpoint if these restrictions, or some of them at least, persist for a long period of time? In other words, in a situation where the World Health Organization has declared a pandemic, where case numbers are high, where we're concerned about the possibility of a fourth or fifth wave and new variants coming in, it, it would seem easier to justify restrictions on what individuals can do and where they can go and what sorts of services they can access. Might that become harder the longer this goes on? I, so I, I think, yes. Um, but it's, it's as is the case with everything during this pandemic, it's an, it's a very interesting question with, I think, no clear cut answer. Um, <laughs> you know, the Supreme court, we have guidance from the Supreme court already. If we're just thinking about section seven of the charter and the right to life, liberty, security of person and measures that a government may take that infringes on those measures, um, you know, we, we always say that violations of Section 7 might be hard to justify under Section 1 of the Charter, but the Supreme Court of Canada has even remarked in prior cases that, you know, it's these violations might be more justifiable in times of, let's say, an epidemic or, a, I'd say, pandemic here. And so, so while the measures in place currently might not rise to the level of a Section 7 violation or any charter violation, depending on the facts of the case, um, I think you d the longer this drags on, the harder it is for the state to justify certain actions. Um, 
they might have to adjust those actions and maybe uh, tailor it to whatever developments occur in society. But I think keeping policies in place from three months ago um, into the next two to three years might actually pose new constitutional issues that we haven't seen before. With so much during these last months, we can safely answer it depends. Uh, and and time will tell. Well, well, thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today. I know that we will have occasion to speak with you again as we continue to navigate the legal dimension of this pandemic. I look forward to being able to shut down this podcast because it won't be the time of COVID-19 anymore, but we're not there yet. So thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Adam, very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Adam Kanji is a litigator, and Nicole Denisette is a labor and employment lawyer, both at McCarthy Tatro and both in Toronto. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is produced by the incomparable Chloe Thomas, who is about to become a mum. Congratulations, Chloe. We will miss you, but we hope you have a wonderful parental leave. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. You can also find lots more content on our firm's website at www.mccarthy.ca. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please get vaccinated.